Welcome to Shane Talks. This is episode 44. Steven Blockbusterberg. We will uh, we will be talking about Steven Spielberg's film career today, uh, week number two of our Blockbusters episodes. As always, I am joined by Jason L. Mayer. What's up, buddy? What up? Um, and tonight, uh, we're doing a little theme with our beers. Uh, we are drinking from uh it's technically big woods but they've rebranded as quaffon because of some legal problems but they make a peanut butter busted knuckle uh which is a peanut butter porter so with the porter you get uh some chocolatey flavor uh and then their the, the regular busted knuckle has a good is a good robust porter that's got a hints of chocolate to it this one, they add peanut butter to it, so it gives it a nice creamy peanut buttery flavor. Uh, and we're doing this beer because we're pairing it with some Reese's Pieces, which are fairly important in Steven Spielberg's film career. Jason, were you able to get some Reese's Pieces today to go with your beer? Nice. All right, so I'm going to open mine real quick. Uh, I have had this beer a lot. I really love it. I really enjoy it. I'm excited to find out if Jason L. Mayer feels the same way. Cheers, man. Here's the Steven Spielberg's career. How do you feel about it? That is an interesting... I don't know if it's because I put the Reese PCs in my mouth right before I did that. Okay. Or what, but... That's a pretty solid beer. Yeah, I'm it's really big... tasty. Not a big porter guy, so yeah, it's a, it's absolutely delicious. Uh, one thing that I like to do with this beer, uh, they also have their blonde ale is called Six Foot Blonde, but then in the summer they do a version of it called Six Foot Strawberry Blonde, which is a strawberry blonde ale. Yeah. I like to mix the two of them together, and it's called a peanut butter and jelly, and it is it is amazing. You get a, a solid peanut butter taste up front. And uh, it finishes with a with a really sweet. Uh, it's strawberry flavored, but it still gives you like a jam jelly type flavor to it. And it's just it's a really tasty beer. And the, the best part is is when you go into uh, any of the big woods um, uh, brew uh, brew pubs or anything here in Indianapolis, you can literally order a peanut butter and jelly beer, and they know exactly what it is. Um, it's super tasty. Uh, so good. I'm glad you like the beer. We got some. Uh, Reese's Pieces to go with it while we talk. Um, and the question number one, did you watch anything this week that you care to talk I, about? I did. Um, so uh, what did I watch? I watched In the Heights in the theater. Oh, awesome. So, uh, cool. You know, I'm one of those purists mm-hmm. who uh, would rather watch it in the theater than watch it on HBO Max at home. And um, uh, it, it's definitely got some good stuff about it. I think it was a good movie musical. I don't know if I love the musical so much, but it was it was really good. It was entertaining enough. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, it's kind of interesting because like there's a bunch of people that were in Hamilton that he reuses in this movie. Okay. Uh, uh, did you watch the movie yet? I haven't watched it yet. We haven't found time. We. We unfortunately got really busy last weekend and uh, and just didn't end up. We're we're going to do it as a family movie night because everybody in my family wants to see it, and like our plans just the last weekend got blown up, and so we never the three of us weren't ever at home at the same time last weekend to watch it. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so uh, the guy who plays George Washington is in the movie uh, from Hamilton. From Hamilton uh, is in the movie. The guy who plays his son Philip, and also, uh, oh my goodness, it's the other one that ends up uh, in the first act. Uh, anyway, the one who plays Philip is the main character. Um, um, the main, the original Mimi from Rent is in this. Oh, nice. Um, and a, a lot of people have seen Jimmy Smith's is in it, uh, oh, cool. commercials and stuff. And then, um, who else is in this that I was just like, oh, Mark Anthony's in it. It's just a huge, huge who's who of Latino community, uh, actors and actresses. It's just, but, um, a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment. Um, I hope you like it. I mean, if you're not a huge musical fan, I can see why you wouldn't. If you if you like musicals on kind of just like, oh, yeah, I like them, then you probably will like it. If you don't like musicals, skip this. I mean, they're, they're, like, I like it, but I like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, sure. So some people don't. Some people just don't get it. Um, for them, like, it's, it's weird because when I first saw Hamilton live, I didn't, like, I was like, oh, that was fine. But like the more I was like ingesting my thoughts on the whole thing, um, I feel like the show's a lot better than I was giving it credit for. And then also being able to watch it on Disney Plus uh, and seeing the original cast compared to um, the traveling cast. It's definitely something that I would recommend. The other thing that we haven't talked about is you and I have both watched the Friends reunion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't even uh, until you texted me that said you were watching it because it, it's like a weekly game with you whether you have HBO Max or not. Like it's like you have HBO Max and then all of a sudden you te- I ask you, oh, did you watch this? Oh, I canceled HBO Max. And then like a week or two later, I get a text from you where you're like, oh, they have this now, so I'm gonna get HBO Max again. I wasn't sure when the Friends reunion came out where you were on having having HBO Max or not, but then I got the text from you. Uh, where you said that you'd watched it. And yeah, we haven't talked about that. Um, I loved it. I teared up a couple of times. I thought it was cool. I I, I wish it could have been better. I wish they could have had like, uh, I think Paul Rudd deserved to be on there. Because um, like, I love Reese Witherspoon, but they had her on there for, she did one episode out of you know, 236, whereas Paul Rudd did a season and a half. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen Cole Sprouse on there since he's kind of popular right now, like with his CW Riverdale stuff and whatnot. I would have liked to see him talk about, you know, being a, a super little kid on the show and, and how he felt and whatnot. Um, but I really enjoyed the Lady Gaga smelly cat stuff. I thought that was really well done. Um, let's see. Uh, watching them just like watching them walk around the set and like talk about memories that they had on the set. I thought was really awesome. Uh, the updated version of the trivia game that they played was a lot of fun. Um, so overall, like, and, and again, like I know a lot of people were giving them shit for having James Corden be like the MC on it and whatnot. And I mean, whatever, like I, I, I have no problems with James Corden. I know, I know I have a few friends that, that really dislike him for some stuff in his past and whatnot, but I I enjoy his talk show. I enjoy the movies I've seen him in. Um, I I don't really have anything against him. So could they have found a better host? Probably. Um, But it is what it is. So your thoughts on it. Um, Really, really enjoyed the behind the scenes stuff that they were talking about. Sure. The fact that like 
the fact that the tension or the 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 wanting and the 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 wanting of Ross and Rachel was basically the wanting of Jennifer and yep. uh, David Schwimmer is just like crazy to me. I never like I never knew that. I never would have guessed that. It makes perfect sense. Um, so I was, uh, it was one of those moments when that happened, I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know, it just took it up to a different level. I thought that was great. Um, and then hearing the story about uh, Joey dislocating his arm, like, it's totally yep. reminiscent of when we were making movies and, you know, I dove headfirst into the corner of a wall. So, like, I totally understood where he was coming from. Uh-huh. So, yeah, just one of those moments of... Um, yeah, I just I thought Tom Selleck coming back was kind of fun. Yep. Uh, I wish I would have seen a little bit more of him because I think like for sure just, just a little bit more commentary from him or something would have been great. But overall, lots of fun. Well, and it was like it was nice that they got Tom Lennon on there for that quick gag with Joey, like his hand twin and whatnot. But again, like Tom Lennon was in one episode and they brought him on there. Like I feel like there were other people that were around. I mean, Aisha Tyler was on, you know, half a season. Like, they should have brought her on. Like, I don't know. And, you know, who knows? As a producer, perhaps people were off filming stuff and not available to even do a Zoom thing. I don't really believe that with the way Zoom is right now. Like, I feel like they could have at least gotten some recorded messages from some of these other people. And I've seen the producers try to defend it where they're like, oh, we can't have a reunion that's just all about the guest stars on the show, but you picked some really shitty guest stars to, to be the ones you decided to bring on, in my opinion. Yeah, but at least they brought in Richard and Janice, so. Yeah. And, and Even that, like, it was awesome to see Janice in there, but she barely got, like, she got 45 seconds to a minute of time on, on in the whole thing. Yeah, but do we really want, like you said, though, like, do we want a reunion of the six of them that's just nothing but gobbled up time by the guest star? I guess I did. Uh, the other story that I really loved was finding out uh, as much of a friends fan as I am. I never knew that the Monica and Chandler hooking up in London was only supposed to be them hooking up in London. And they had planned to just make it like the butt of a joke for the rest of the show where like they would always just mention the fact that, you know, they hooked up once or whatever, but they, uh, they said that the audience reaction was so loud that they looked at each other and they were like, there might be something with keeping them together. So like, I, I really loved that story. I thought that was cool that it was never actually supposed to be as big as it was. So uh, yeah, I didn't watch it. What's up? Steven Spielberg, right? We are going to talk about Steven Spielberg. Uh, as we discussed last week, for anybody that didn't listen last week, there's two major release time periods uh, for films. You got your summer blockbusters, Excuse me. Oh, excuse me again. You get your summer blockbusters and you have your winter attempts for uh, Oscar buzz and stuff like that. Literally almost all of Steven Spielberg's careers falls into those two windows. Uh, we are going to skip Duel and the Sugarland Express, which were his t- first two feature films he did. Um, I've never seen the Sugarland Express and I watched Duel 22 years ago. And honestly, don't remember it at all. Uh, right when you and I were starting to get into our filmmaking and whatnot, like I had a time period where I wanted to watch uh, the first films by a bunch of like big directors and whatnot. Um, so I watched that. I'm pretty sure I got it from Zach at the VH1 video. Um, 
literally don't remember it at all. He's saying. Have you seen either one of them, Duel or Sugar Land Express? Have not. Cool. I so know Duel was a TV movie, if I'm remembering correctly, originally. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, um, so the other interesting thing that we're going to talk about when we go through this with Steven Spielberg is five different times, five different years, he had a release in the summer and the winter, and that's that's pretty much unheard of. Like, you don't you don't have very many times that one director has two movies come out in a year, let alone two movies that come out like uh, at the two biggest time periods, the summer and the winter. So like the fact that he's done it five times is pretty ridiculous. And it's going to be interesting to look at every year that that happens. It was 89, 93, 97, 02 and 05. And then the other crazy thing that he did that I didn't realize until today. Uh, well, yesterday, I guess, um, in 2011, he had two winter releases that came out four days apart. Yeah, but like one of those, and we'll get into it when we get to there. There's there's a reason why those were released only four days apart. Four days apart, yeah. We, we can talk about it when we get down there. So your first up, June 20th of 1975. Literally, according to some, the birth of the summer blockbuster. And I could definitely believe that. And if I could get over to my piano on the other side of the room and mm-hmm. play the two notes for you, everybody would know instantly what we are talking about. We are talking about the one and only Bruce, the biggest shark of them all until, you know, the Meg came and took on Jason Statham. We're talking <laughs> about Jaws. Which, solid film. And uh, not too long ago when, when Jason Richardson was on, we had talked about the fact that... Um, I don't remember why we were talking about it or what episode it was, but for whatever reason, I wanted to watch Jaws. I don't. I, I think it was just stuck in me for whatever reason. I was like, I haven't seen it in a long time. I want to watch it. And we discussed the fact that like it is considered like the summer blockbuster, and it's a very slow movie. Oh, it is. Like, um, it, it's not what a summer blockbuster is now, but that like doesn't diminish anything from it because the character development and like the Quint's story that he tells uh, about the Indianapolis, like it, it, it's, it's literally just like a five minute story, but it's so in, like enthralling yep. because it's touching on the emotions of the other two characters in that scene, like validating, like how the ocean is, is a deadly place to be. And like, just, it, it's a really good movie. But when I watched it a couple of, I guess it was like two months ago, it, it just doesn't feel like a summer blockbuster anymore. But again, like, neither that makes it a bad movie. It's just so different what a blockbuster was back in the 70s. Uh, so it ended up making $261 million in America and then added another $210 million overseas for a grand total of $471 million. And that's in 1975. Is that is that all the re-releases put together, or is that just the one release? Oh, do you know what? I I bet you're right. Because I pulled all my numbers this week from Box Office Mojo, I, I bet those are grand totals for every time yeah. it's been re-released. That makes a lot more sense. And, Ooh. you know, this is one of the last movies. I want to say it's one of the last movies. I Oh, no. I guess I, I would have seen stuff in 35. This is the last movie I think I saw at the Art Craft. In Franklin. Oh, nice. Um, 
and I, yeah, I went with some friends and that was probably 15, 16 years ago now. And, um, uh, saw it on the big screen in a 35 millimeter print and it was gorgeous. Nice. Uh, shout out to Steve Blair who takes care of the projectors down there and shows most of their 35 millimeter films. And, um, but yeah, he, um, uh, fantastic. I'm so glad that I saw it in 35. I'd never seen it on the big screen before and made that, made that attempt and was glad that I did. So. Yeah. I never, I've never seen that movie on the big screen. Um, but yeah, so so his his third official feature film that he directed was huge, like literally like scared people out of the water for an entire summer because of shark attacks and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I guess we need to like preface the rest of the podcast with the fact that all of the numbers I pulled for these movies from Box Office Mojo probably re- include every re-release that there's ever been for any Steven Spielberg movie. So yeah, kind of stopped doing that and like what? In the mid '90s, late '90s, they definitely. I mean, you have some stuff that came out again, but for the most sure. part, when something comes out in the '90s, that's when it came out and it was done. Yeah. So, so some some of these numbers that we're going to talk about might be a little more inflated than what they actually were, you know, at the time of the release. Uh, well, and the other thing that we need to address is the fact that this week we have decided to break it up by we are starting with all of his summer releases. We're going to look through every summer release that he's had. And then we will, uh, his summer blockbusters, a lot of them are action movies, adventure movies, stuff like that. Then we're going to go and shift and look into his winter slash Oscar releases, uh, which there's a couple of fun fantasy movies in his, in his December releases also. But um, these summer releases that we're going to talk about, uh, I, will, I will have a lot more input on them because as I put the script together this week, there's a lot of his winter releases that I just skipped, never watched them, wasn't interested in them. So I won't have as much input on his winter. There's a few of them, um, but a few a few of his winter releases I, I purposely skipped because I wasn't interested in them. But we'll talk about that when we get down there. So uh, June 12th, 1981. It has been retitled, but the original title was just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, got renamed Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark at some point in time, just so that you had the Indiana Jones n- uh, name on the uh, on each individual movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so Raiders, another great couple of memories with this movie for me. Yeah, uh, I remember it being one of the first movies that I was like a grown up movies that I was watching when I was like really really young. Um, Raiders also I saw in thirty five and at Clearwater because for a little while there every now and then Jason Richardson and Devin Klaus and um, uh, would uh, every now and then would just get a classic movie and put it on the big screen. They did this with Ferris Bueller's day off. They did this with Ghostbusters and it wasn't a part of any of their big um, uh, film festivals or anything. It was just something fun. And Raiders was one of those movies as well, but uh, I'd have to say my favorite going of Raiders was uh, one of my birthdays. I will, can't remember. Sarah would have been born, but so she probably, but she wasn't old enough to come with us. Um, so my two oldest came with me and my brother and my wife, and we went to the Indianapolis, or we went to the Circle Theater downtown Indianapolis, and the ISO played the score, and then they played oh. the movie above them. 
and uh, it was fantastic. So I was great. literally about to say, why wasn't I invited to this? But I was probably stuck at work that night, so that probably makes sense. It was on a Sunday. My okay. birthday was actually on a Sunday that week, that year. Got it. And so, uh, yeah, so you were probably working, and it was football season, so yeah. we know. So we know how that all plays out for us. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, yeah, uh, wait, numbers. Um, I'm trying to think. I and it's, it might be blasphemy, but I think Raiders is my least favorite. Well, I mean, I'm counting the real trilogy here. I'm not yeah. counting the fourth one, but of the three original trilogies, it's probably my it's probably my third favorite. Like I. I like Temple of Doom first, and then Last Crusade, and then this one. Like, I yeah. I need to watch them all why. again, but I think Last Crusade is my least favorite, and for the most part, it's it has just, Sean Connery in it. I, I understand, and I love Sean Connery, and he's fantastic in the role, but it almost becomes George Lucas slapstick esque by that point, uh, where and it's there almost, was probably the most comedy out of those three in that one for sure i'll give you that well and and that's kind of like the beginning of the writing that ends up becoming problematic for me i can Um, see that where you know accidents constantly save people from getting out of troubled situations and you know i can't even remember who said the quote but it was like you what was it you write your you write them out you write your characters out of bad situations. You don't just let accidents happen or something along those lines. Okay. Where, like it's just lazy writing. If you just let something magically happen that ends up freeing them or getting them out of trouble. Um, All right. So like ever since I read that and I've, and I've watched um, last crusade since then, I've just been like, Oh, cause there's <laughs> so many points in that movie where like accidents just happen to let them go. Okay. Every okay. Time. So it's kind of like right. Jar Jar when he does the whole juggling and he yeah. accidentally throws grenade and blows up that one trooper that ends up crashing the yeah. tank. Yeah. All right. All right. I get you. Uh, so Raiders, uh, as of now, the grand totals were domestically 248, so uh, a little bit less than Jaws. Uh, and worldwide, a little uh, 980 million less than Jaws. It did 390 million total um, everywhere. Still very solid numbers that not very many movies nowadays hit. Like So still, still a very decent amount of money for, the, for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I would say the next movie, June 11th of 1982, is probably what the majority of people love about Steven Spielberg, um, and that's ET. Um, that's uh, that's why we're eating uh, Reese's Pieces tonight. Um, as a kid, obviously, I was always big into Aliens. Um, I liked ET a lot when I was growing up. Uh, I, I I had a crush on Drew Barrymore. Uh, that crush came back in Scream. Made me a lot of happy. There was a lot of her like '90s rom coms that she did. The one with Chris O'Donnell, I can't remember what it was called. Was was I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, always had a crush on Drew Barrymore, and I think it stemmed from seeing her as a child in in ET. Um, just a fun movie. Um, I'm here. I 100% will only watch it if it's not the uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh, re-edit of it where he took all of the guns out of the movie 
Um, uh, my funniest ET story that I've got is uh, in, I don't know, it would have been like 99, 2000-ish, somewhere around there when I was still buying DVDs at Blockbuster. Um, the ET Collector's Edition one week, like they threw up this thing that it was like, this is going in the vault. This is the last time you're ever going to be able to buy ET on DVD. It's the two disc collector's edition. That's got the original cut and the new cut. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm never going to be able to buy it again. I have to buy it this week. Bought it. Uh, for the next two years, I still saw it for sale at Best Buy. So I don't know what their, what their big stick was with trying to tell me I could never buy it after that week or whatever. Cause it was definitely for sale for the next two years that I remember. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I still I still have the DVD, so I I don't know I don't own it digitally yet. I don't think because I'm not sure which version you get when you buy the digital version. Um, but I still have the original 1982 version or 19 yeah 82 version on DVD, so that I can watch not cops running around with radios in their hands and pointing radios at kids. Uh, do you have any memories or good stories about ET? Um. I never cared for the movie a whole lot when I was younger. I it was fine. It just okay. I think I was more into Flight of the Navigator and Last Star. Oh, oh, both both amazing movies. More so than ET, but um, ET's a good movie. It's well, fine. You know, like eighty six and eighty nine when you're looking at those movies. Yeah, but that's when I started really watching movies. Like, okay. You know, like eighty two. I'm one. What when this movie comes out, I'm one and a half. So like yeah. So, but around the time that like 86 to 86 to 90 is when my love of movies really started festering and um so but uh yeah et was fine i showed it to my kids outside we did an outside outdoor movie night with this movie last year um i bought the blu-ray just specifically so we could watch it out there what versions on the blu-ray it's the original. I don't oh, think it, I don't think it even has the director's cut version on there. Good. But I might be wrong. Um but yeah, they we had a lot of fun. The kids liked it. You know, it's the whole the, the kids were sad when ET was dying kind of thing, but they got over it. <laughs> uh cool. Uh, ET huge huge numbers. And again, I forgot to think about the fact that this includes re-releases, but you're looking at $435 million in the United States alone, and then a worldwide grand total of $793 million. So, obviously, a lot of people like this movie. Um, the next one, we're, we're going to see a little bit of a dip in his domestic career, but his worldwide is kind of on, it's his lowest, but still on par with some of his other movies. But in May 23rd of 1984, we got a sequel slash the first ever prequel recorded in history that I know of uh, with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And again, I just said not too long ago that I think this is probably my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Um, And I think part of that comes from I, I really feel like there's a lot of adventure in it. I feel like it kicks off. You know, with uh, with the scene at the Chinese restaurant and everything with uh, Billy or whatever the I can't remember the main female's name, uh, but there's the there's a big opening at the Chinese restaurant with her, um, and then you've got Indiana Jones and in Short Round, you know, taking her on an adventure, and I just I feel like it 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 kicks off very like it almost feels like a Bond movie in the beginning with the way it is, 
Um, the scene at the scene at the uh, the Chinese restaurant at the beginning of Temple of Doom very very much feels like Bondish to me. What's that? It's the Obi Wan Club. Yes, yeah, um, great Star Wars reference there. But I was saying that it feels very like uh, James Bondish to me the way that it starts. Absolutely, it, it really just kicks into the action because even like once they escape and whatnot, it's it's pretty much action, action, action. And I think that's why I was saying that I I think is my favorite one. Also for the fact that like I remember as a kid being creeped out by the monkey brains scene. Dude, like that whole brain, dinner. The baby snakes, the yeah. eyeballs, the the heart getting ripped out. Yeah. Dude, that it's a freaky movie. It is not for kids at no. all. But um this is this is tough because Obviously, you don't get Raiders with you don't get Temple of Doom without Raiders, but I might say that this is better than both, but better than Raiders. On I some, think it is. and the and the funny thing is, is like in '99 when George Lucas was doing the prequel to Star Wars, everybody was freaking out, like they didn't realize Temple of Doom is literally the first ever prequel that I know of in film. Like yeah. everybody thinks that it's a sequel. But if you look at the at the dates that they put on screen for the movies, it takes place one year before Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. And like I just I think that's really cool that like uh, Lucas and Spielberg had that idea and concept in place of like sort of non-linear storytelling oh. with characters that like I I I don't know why they did it. I don't I don't really understand the reasoning behind it. Like there was no reason why it had to be something that came before Raiders, but like it's it's just interesting. Like storyline wise, it doesn't matter either way. There's nothing in either one of the movies that has to be before or after the other one. You know what's interesting is I want to say Lucas and him before they made Raiders of the Lost Ark went on a vacation together to celebrate Jaws. And celebrate Star Wars. Yep. They were on a vacation together, and they were just bouncing ideas back and forth. And at one point, they talked about they wanted to. Uh, Spielberg said he wanted to do a James Bond kind of movie. Okay. Um, and he was like, "We could do something like that where it's spies and it's this cool stuff, and he's a cool guy and everything else." But then George Lucas was like, do, "But do you remember those serials that we used to watch every?" saturday growing up like whether it would like westerns and stuff like that so they kind of just like blended it all together to make indiana jones okay. and so the beginning of this movie makes a whole lot of sense when you think about it in that aspect because you're absolutely right it feels james bond-esque at the beginning and um so what um i meant to mention this while we were talking about raiders was yeah. that um this is obviously was this character was obviously the inspiration for for Rick in the mummy and like oh sure like, like this this whole like the feel of the mummy is very Raiders esque oh I could, could yeah definitely see that. Indiana Jones being in that role instead of Rick yeah and, um but um yeah but I thought the mummy the first mummy was fantastic I love that movie. One of um, one of my favorite action movies, like to this action comedies, like I love the cast, I love the story, I love I love the first Mummy movie. 
but it, it totally feels like a, a, an Indiana Jones movie. And it, I mean, it very well could have been. For sure. What year was the mummy released in again? I always forget. Um, Never forget that. Oh, was that released in 1999? Yes, it was. Yes. The Mummy was released in 1999. That's why it's so good. Um, So then, so that was 1984. Uh, As far as his summer blockbusters go, we got a five-year gap until 1989. And he follows it up with? Another Indiana Jones movie, uh, The Last Crusade, which I know we briefly touched on a second ago, but bringing in Sean Connery, um, the whole like Nazi World War II stuff that was going on at the time, like I really enjoyed it. I, I like the mysticism of the night at the end. I, I really enjoy the the Holy Grail. Like I, I I was nine when I saw the movie, and it was one of those. It's one of those movies that like sticks with me. Like I love River Phoenix in the opening. I love the It Belongs in a Museum line. I love, I mean, obviously it's, it jumps around in time, which I love, like you know, the opening jumps ahead in time. I, I, I love the shot when, when it jumps in time, when, when the guy, when the guy shows up at, at the Jones house and then he takes his fedora off and puts it on river Phoenix. And then it cuts right to the future of him lifting his head back up. I love that like storytelling beat in that film i think it's so well done and then it's the you know it belongs in a museum line and you realize dude he hasn't given up on this artifact in like you know 40 fucking year 30 years or whatever it was that the jump was really enjoy that opening storytelling i love the mysticism of the night at the end like you know obviously well it's not as ridiculous as kingdom of the crystal skull but it's, you know, fantasy that you've got this knight who's lived for thousands of years protecting the Holy Grail. Yeah, but there's a difference between mystic, like the mystic arts and like the complete science fiction that the fourth one is. Sure. Like, I don't feel like they're one in the same whether I mean, not in the Indiana Jones universe anyway, not like they are in the MCU. Sure. Uh, but like it definitely felt like Raiders, especially being the arc, and the second one being the 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 life sucking, soul sucking thing that uh, Temple yeah. of Doom is. Yep. And this one, it just kind of feels right with like mystic arts. Whereas like then when they went with that fourth one, man, it felt like they jumped the shark there during the entire movie. Oh yeah. Going with like going with alien science fiction instead of mysticism and it was yeah. it didn't work for me at all well and even like the third act i love the fact that you're given a villain who then shoots his dad and and that forces indy's hand to be like you have to go do what i want you to do if you want to save your dad like if you tell me to fuck off your dad's gonna die well and and what's interesting to me about that is um i always wondered how the guy got there well uh, okay yeah that's you know what i mean not wrong, like, yes. indiana jones had to do those the yes the tests. Yep. and then and then all of a sudden after he's talking to the night he like turns around and they're right there and it's like yeah 
<laughs> yeah, I so, won't argue so with you they, about they that. They jumped on all the stones to get across and spelled his name correctly, even though there were big holes in the ground. Which also makes brings up the point that is there like a back door that once you get to the night <laughs> you can like slip back to the front easily because Indy's like running back with the water and he's like yep. he, he wouldn't have been able to jump <laughs> over all those holes while holding a kite right like, suspension of disbelief it's for sure that they always count on the speed of- uh, so we we will address this later in the episode but I just want to bring up 1989 uh, his winter release was the movie Always. So the same year as The Last Crusade, uh, which was, what do we say, May 24th, uh, in December, he released the movie Always, which we'll talk about later. Um, After The Last Crusade, there's a four-year summer gap, and then it is literally, probably, most definitely my favorite Steven Spielberg-directed film. Uh, I read the book for a for a class project in my seventh grade year. Uh, the movie came out a couple of days after my thirteenth birthday. Um, I absolutely love Jurassic Park. Um, it was released on June eleventh of nineteen ninety three. Like I said, just a couple of days after my thirteenth birthday, uh, my parents, for part of my birthday party, took me and a couple of my friends to what ended up becoming the Castleton Arts Movie Theater. But in 93, they were still showing mainstream movies, the four, five, six. Yep. Um, So they took me to that theater to watch the movie. Uh, Like two or three of my friends came with us. Uh, Like I said, my seventh grade year of of middle school, I I had to do like, uh, I think it was, I think it was the whole like second half of my seventh grade year. We had to read an entire book and do a book report on it. And I had picked Jurassic Park as my book because I was really, really excited for the movie. So, book, obviously way better than the movie, but the movie is still really damn good. Um, and, and, and to this day, I can put this movie on at any time and just watch the whole thing. I, I love the whole movie. Forgot to mention it. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade saw that at the Glendale 456. Oh, nice. Um, yep. So, uh, which no longer exists. And that building was torn down after being a Sears home store for a while. Yeah. But uh, um, same here, Jurassic Park. I saw it on June 10th. Oh, you uh, lucky little bitch! There was a, a 10 p.m. showing or a or a midnight showing. I can't remember. It might have been 10 p.m. Um, oh, maybe it was the midnight. Whatever the case, saw it in theater number four. Or uh, theater number five at what was Castleton Arts. It was the first movie that they had put DTS in at that building for. Uh, They had turned up the bass so loud that while I was watching the movie, the ceiling tiles inside the auditorium were shaking so much because of the bass that like dust was coming down from the ceiling. So like literally it was like, boom and like just a little bit of dust coming down and you could see the dust in the in the projector light uh i was kind of close to the front to be honest Uh, i want to say i was only probably i was easily in the first 10 rows um and i have to say that is in my top four movie going experiences of my life was it sold Uh, out i assume 
Oh, it was. It was. Uh, I want to say, and oh, that's tough, man. Like, uh, so my top three are all in that building. Okay. So the first one is like the top three. It's hard for me to interchange them, but yeah. Jurassic Park on the screen, first screening I ever saw the opening night. Uh, so, uh, then I also watched, we watched Friday the 13th part three in 3d in that building. And that and, would have been the red blue 3d, right? Yeah. You nice. were there for those. I was um, there. When, when we did those for Castleton art special showings, that yep. was amazing. Uh, especially with the crowd. And then uh, my other one, the same room was our concert date premiere. So, which was is yeah. easily in my top three. And then my fourth one is Scream 2 when I saw it at Eastgate with a sold out crowd. Being in the being in the uh, the east side of Indianapolis while that, watching that movie was truly an experience. So uh, I wasn't too far away on the screen too. I ended up I, I didn't get to go on Friday night. I went on Saturday night of opening weekend, but I went to the Lowe's Cherry Tree that was right down the street on Washington Street. Uh, and and I agree, it was it was the right neighborhood for that movie. It was a lot of fun. Um, but. Jurassic Park, yeah, as much as I loved the book, um, it was it was probably my first moment as a 13-year-old learning about the, the, the shift from a novel to a film and what does and doesn't translate. And because I don't I don't know if I'd ever read a book and loved it so much that I went to the movie so excited. And again, like I love the movie. In no way do I not love the movie, but there's so many things from the book that got left out that obviously I was disappointed about. I was really high off reading the book for my for my project that I did for school. And then like I go and I'm like, wait, they cut this out? Wait, why isn't this in there? The island doesn't blow up at the end. Like, what what's going on? Like, why did why didn't they do these things? And you know, looking back now as as somebody who has, you know, been a part of the film industry as, as much as I have. I realized why would they blow the island up? They're going to want to do a sequel. Like um, uh, it, it's sad that a lot of the things that I really missed from the first book or from the book that didn't make the first movie, they just stole it from the first book and put it into the second movie. Like the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex scene under the waterfall that's in the second movie, but that is flat out of the first book. Um so it was very interesting. As a third, was that the third movie or the second movie? What's the that? Compies. The little girl. Oh, yeah. The oh, the, yeah. The little girl in the copies. That's in the third movie. That's the opening scene of the third movie. That's the opening of the first book. So, um, yeah. One of the other things that I wish we would have seen, but we never got the chance to with the series was one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, oh the third, the third thing was um, or the other third part, part of the yeah. From the third movie was the pterodactyl bone. Oh, yep, yep. That was in the that was in the that first was in the book. book that they put in the third movie. Um, but uh, in the book, they talk about the velociraptors jumping like twenty feet to get on top of like to get over fences and things like that. And that I don't think ever made it into any of the books or into any of the movies. Yeah, they kind of jump pretty high though. Um, as far as that, but uh, my fate, one of my favorites reading it and visualizing it because while reading it was they're in a raft uh, on a river 
trying to get away from the T-Rex and the T-Rex got into the, um, got into the river and his, no- his nose and his eyes are up above the water, kind of like a crocodile or an alligator. And he's running across the f- ground of the river at the bottom of the river, trying to catch him. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden he stops and he turns and he goes the other way. And they're like, Oh, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, Oh, Hey, there's a waterfall. So that that's one of my favorite parts in the book yep. that never made it into a movie. And it's, it's sad because you know, you get those images in your brain and you and I differ on this a little bit. I'd much rather watch the movie first and then not be disappointed when I watch the movie and then read the book and be like, Oh, that would have been so cool. That's the way See, I experienced Jurassic Park. So, and 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 I understand that, but let me ask you this: Have you read Ready Player One yet? The book. I own it and I've started it, but I have not. No. Exactly. So my point being is, is like you don't have any interest in reading the book because you already know like the movie story of it. No, no, no. So, I do have interest. I, I okay. mean, I read Jurassic Park. I just haven't found the time to do ready player one yet i want to read a book because i don't have the movie yet so i can read the book the original source material and i can i can make the picture in my head like that's what i love about books is like when i read jurassic park i told the story in my head and i knew what i wanted jurassic park to be so then yes i'm a little disappointed in the movie from that aspect but again i still love the movie for what it is but when you read, when you watch a movie first, like Ready Player One, you've already seen the movie. You've seen what Steven Spielberg thinks Ready Player One is. So when you're reading the book, you're seeing his vision in your reading because you've already you've already seen it visually. Yeah, but my issue with that is I've done it both ways. Okay, where I've read the book before the movie, and I've because I did that with Lost World. I love Jurassic Park so much that I went and bought the book. I read the book after I saw the movie. And then when Lost World got released, I read that book before the movie came out. And so let me ask you this about about a franchise I know you're passionate about. You love the Monster Hunter books, not not Monster Hunter, the shitty fucking movie that just came out. Monster Hunter, a completely different science fiction novel series. Larry Korea, you can get the first one free if you do it a digital reader, which I totally recommend. Monster Hunter International. Well, all, all right, Monster awesome. Hunter International. There you go. Sorry, yeah. Uh, I, if it's free, dude, I'll look into it. I'll I'll look into getting the book. But I would rather read that book before I ever see the movie they're talking about making about it. Well, like, I mean, again, like I'm, I've become addicted to that series, so I'm ingesting it as quickly as it comes out pretty much or understandable so- but what if you had read ready player one two or three years before the movie came out i would have been fine with it if i would have found it beforehand i just okay you know it's i i never found that book it's not like i was staying away from it on purpose it was okay. literally just i'd never heard of it and then when the mo- the trailer came out you and i started talking about it and you were like oh the book's so freaking awesome and you were like it's just literally nothing but like you know, culture references, 80s and homages to everything that we've ever loved. And I was yep. like, oh, that sounds cool. And I just didn't like I even bought the book during quarantine because of the fact that I was like, you know what? I need to read this. It's something yeah. I'd like to read. I'd like to see the better references than what happened in the movie. But I just it just didn't happen yet. And so. like, I mean, I understand cutting stuff for a movie. It, it, 
Ready Player One is literally something I wish Netflix bought. I wish Netflix had turned it into a 10-episode limited series or something like that. Like, there is so much going on. Like, the 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 quests for the keys... You know what? Like, we'll, we'll, we, got, we got a couple more movies to get to, and we'll <laughs> actually be able to talk about this movie. Uh, so Jurassic Park, I absolutely love the book. I loved the movie. Uh, the visuals in that movie... Like, the scene that stands out the most for me is literally the reveal of the brontosaurus when uh, they're in the Jeep. What's that? Brachiosaurus. But it's a okay. Brachiosaurus. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Uh, the, re- the reveal of that when it's Alan Grant in the vehicle, nice two shot of him and Ellie, and like just the it's look of awe on his face as it goes up. Yeah. Like him like pulling his sunglasses off. Like, and it, it, it's just the, it, it, Steven Spielberg did an amazing job of anticipation filmmaking. Because that's probably a 90-second shot of Alan Grant coming out of the Jeep, taking his sunglasses off, looking in awe, and we as the audience don't see what he sees yet. And then it cuts to the Brachiosaurus, and you're like, it's amazing. Like, that was that was very advanced CGI for its time. Oh, yeah. Like, and then... Uh, not CGI, but the the T Rex scene at night with the rain, uh, when he attacks the two cars, is is a, an absolutely amazing. It, it's a very tense That's, scene, and it looks so real. It's a masterpiece because of yeah. how realistic it is. Yep. And to think uh, of the fact that it's just an animatronic, and I can't tell you how many times I've watched that movie, and I'm just like. That, like, I can, like you can see anima, like Bruce in Jaws is an animatronic, for sure, and you can totally tell like that is that he is. But for that movie, like the way that they filmed it, the angles and everything, and the stuff that it the that T Rex did, it's it's just amazing. They did it is Stan, Stan Winston, bravo, sir, for sure. Uh, so that made a lot of money. Uh, domestically, it made $404 million. Uh, and worldwide, it broke the billion-dollar mark. Um, if I remember correctly, it was the f- it was the movie that finally overtook E.T. as the highest-grossing film at that time. I can't remember. But I'll believe you. Uh, I-, I think it overtook. I think E.T. for a long time was the highest-grossing <laughs> film. I think Jurassic Park finally overtook E.T., and then a couple of years later was when Titanic overtook Jurassic Park, if I, if I remember things correctly. And then Titanic held on for a while. Till Avatar. Um, till Avatar. Uh, so, yeah, that would have been... Oh, that's not as long as a gap as I thought it was. Eh. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, so... Uh, just to address it real quick, 1993, that was his summer release. That is the same year that he released Schindler's List in December. So we'll get to that later. Um, then he had a four-year summer gap, and he released the sequel to Jurassic Park, which I don't like pretty much at all. Um, uh, Ian Malcolm was not a very good character in the second movie, his relationship with his daughter was not a good relationship. Her stowing away was really kind of dumb and not plausible in any way. The whole plot of the second movie was pretty bad. The Godzilla um, in San Francisco was horrible. That, yeah, the entire third act is just stupid and terrible. And uh, so, that, yeah, weird. 
That was May of 97. Oh, no, Godzilla was 98. That's right. The the Godzilla remake came out in 98. Yeah. So, like, they're literally the same third act of just... like Yeah, it's, it's the King Kong meets Godzilla thing, because they... They take the beast from the island and bring it back to to the mainland, and then it gets away, and then it terrorizes the. It's uh, it was it was just so bad. Like, not 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 a fan of the Lost World uh, Jurassic Park at all. And the weirdest part was was I had read the book, and this literally takes nothing from the book. Yeah, like, yeah, right. Michael Crichton wrote wrote a sequel to Jurassic Park. It dealt a lot with this company that Nedry was working for in the first movie. It, it dealt a lot with them and, and the alternate site and stuff like that. And like the book was okay. Like I, I don't love it as much as Jurassic Park, but it, it was far better than the movie sequel we got. That's for sure. So yeah, absolutely uh, upsetting. Uh, it made $229 million domestically and somehow added 400 million more uh, internationally for a grand total of $619 million internationally. I don't know how or why. Um, the next year, 1998, saw something kind of weird where Steven Spielberg released a July movie. Uh, I don't know if there was a reason for this coming out in July. I would have thought it should have been like a Memorial Day release, in my opinion, because Saving Private Ryan... Uh, very much a, a military film, a, a historical uh, drama about war and stuff like that. I definitely would have seen it as a Memorial Day release, but it came out on July 24th of 1998. Oddly, I did not see this movie until 1999 when I started working at the movie theater because it got an Oscars re-release that I know about. Um, so I... First of all, I skip war movies. War movies aren't my thing. I don't really care for them. Um, but in 1999, I was working at a movie theater, and I literally watched everything no matter what it was. So at some point, I ended up watching the re-release of Saving Private Ryan, and it's actually a really good movie. Um, and not only is it a good movie, it's got an amazing cast of people who last, like, you know, a minute on screen, but, like, people like Adam Baldwin and Vin Diesel and... Uh, isn't Malcolm Reynolds in this? Isn't Nathan Fillion in this first scene? Like, you know, there's a lot of people that have like one minute of screen time in Saving Private Ryan. And it's really cool when you rewatch it and you're like, there's Adam Baldwin. There's Vin Diesel. There's Malcolm Reynolds getting shot in the head. Like, it's it's fun for that. But it, as much as I don't really like war movies, I didn't, I didn't dislike Saving Private Ryan, but it's also not something I ever... I, it's not something I ever am in the mood to put on. The beginning of this movie is crazy intense. It's the D-Day landing, and it it's the most realistic and gruesome thing, probably, I, that I can imagine for a war film sure. to have pulled off. And he did some stuff with the camera work and things like that, that just, that put you right there. And it, 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 it was shaking. Like, uh, yeah, it was a crazy beginning of that movie. The, the opening uh, is weird for me for the fact that, uh, my grandfather was there, uh, at Normandy, uh, as a medic. So he wasn't, he was the opening scene 
never really that's not him but like after that's all done and you see the next wave of boats come in and it's all doctors coming off and pulling people's bodies and whatnot like that was my that was my grandfather that 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 did that so that's that's kind of why that opening like you were saying like it's really powerful but it was one of those things where i was like in my mind one of those actors was literally playing my grandfather because he was there that day yeah they um and it's tough to watch too like it's it's for a sure rough, it's a rough sequence but he, he did it as beautifully as he could to portray how crazy and chaotic it was i would imagine um I mean, dude, when the thing drops down and all of a sudden just bullets are hitting the first round of guys, like, yeah, I can't even imagine being in a war like that. And then, and then the other part of this movie is the the last, the third act of where they have the standoff with the bridge. Yep, um, it's a that's an intense sequence as well. So the the amount of people that are in this movie, like you said, all the different actors. Um, Tom Hanks is easily one of my favorite actors of all time. And the fact that, and he's in it and does an amazing job. So yeah, it's a tough movie to watch, but for really sure. well done. $217 million uh, domestically ended up doing 482. So basically doubling uh, its international gross uh, kind of, in the, in the middle of the movies we talked about so far, but definitely shows that like, people cared internationally about that story as well. It wasn't just like, you know, for America's sake. Um, his next one is, is one of the bigger duds on his list. Well, and it's, it does it because it's not his. That's true. So uh, June 29th uh, of 2001 was AI artificial intelligence and discuss what you mean by it wasn't his. Uh, so, uh, Stanley Kubrick had been working on an idea for this movie for decades, uh, but he wanted to build a robot for the child that's in this movie who got played by Haley Joel, Haley Joel Osmond. Um, but he wanted to build a animatronic robot boy who could emote and do things. And I can't remember if he chose not to start or did he start putting this together and then he died? Um, I think it might've been in pre-production. The one that he was working on when he died was eyes wide shut. Well, he had finished filming eyes wide shut. He had done, okay. he was done with that. Okay. I want to say that was in like the editing room or something. Okay. And this one where he was like in, in pre-production, like maybe pre-production on this. Yeah. And he ended up passing away. And Steven Spielberg apparently is one of his best friends yep. and ended up taking on the mantle to try and do this movie. Um, Haley Joel Osment is the little kid. Uh, his kind of like handler through the movie is Jude, Jude Law. Law. Um, it's a very weird and strange movie. Um, I remember watching it and thinking like feeling like I could tell where Steven Spielberg was making the movie compared to Stanley Kubrick. Okay. There are certain aspects where I was like, Oh, like if Stanley Kubrick made this movie, this part wouldn't be in here or it would have been filmed completely different because it would have been a tone wise. It would have been different. Steven sure. Spielberg, especially at by this point, maybe, maybe saving private Ryan broke him, 
but he always seemed to have a ton, a touch of like optimism to almost all of his work. Okay. Um, no, mm-hmm. there, there was hardly anything that he made that was a downer ever by this point. Um, but yeah, that like, um, yeah, AI, I don't care for it. I watched it once in the theater. I've never seen it ever again. Um, yeah. I think I've seen my- it twice. I, I saw it once in the theater. I'm pretty sure it was at the, my point in life where I bought every DVD that came out every single week. So I think I did watch it once on DVD. Pretty sure I don't own it on DVD anymore. I don't I don't remember where it would be back there. So I don't think I own it on DVD anymore. But uh, it really, it, it was it was pretty low grossing for him. $79 million in the U.S. and only $219 million worldwide. So, or, I'm sorry, $236 million worldwide. So... One of you one of his absolute lowest. Budget. Was that? You know that did not make back its budget. Not at all. It was so heavy CGI for 2001 that, I mean, yeah, I said 236 total. I would probably put the budget at 200 and some million dollars for how much it CGI. Was there probably was. like it was. It might have been like 180, but yeah, it was sure. definitely high. So, um, the next movie. The next movie I really wanted to like, and I don't dislike it, but it's based on a Philip K. Dick story, and I'm I'm a really big Philip K. Dick fan, so this didn't live up to what I wanted from it. Minority Report was was him and Tom Cruise getting together for a movie. It's not bad, but it's also really not very good. Oh, I so disagree. This is so it's such a fantastic film for me. Like, like Colin Farrell is the highlight of the movie. Like not even the main character. Like no, Colin not, Farrell not. is so good. He's good in it, but I don't think he's the highlight. Tom Cruise uh, did some great actual acting in this movie. Um, I thought the premise of it was really kind of cool. Uh, something that we're probably not far from dealing with nowadays with analytics and the way things happen. Um, but Minority Report is, I thought, it comes out uh, what June twenty first two thousand two. Yep. Domestically we hit one thirty two. Internationally we hit three fifty eight. This is like Steven Spielberg makes a live action anime movie. Like like this movie is. It's got a lot of good action in it and uh, intrigue and suspense. Um, a good who done it kind of thing to it. I I really thoroughly thoroughly enjoy this movie and like the things that they do with the 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 precogs uh, well the precogs were cool but like like the spider uh robots oh yeah yeah, okay yeah and just like the aspects that they use to try and find people while this is going on i just really thoroughly enjoy minority report highly recommend it i i kind of recommend it i kind of like like i like i said i don't hate the movie but I don't go out of my way to watch it either. If it's on and something better is on, I'll watch something else. Uh, the Russian components, American components, all made <laughs> in Taiwan. He's in this movie. Uh, Peter Stamare. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. 2002, the year we're talking about with Minority Report is also, excuse me, good Lord, is also the same year that he released Catch Me If You Can. So we will discuss that in a little bit. Uh, 2004. This is a really weird one. This, to me... 
uh, when I was doing when I was doing the script writing and all my research for this week, uh, when I came across the terminal, I said, "Oh, that was a December release. That was him trying to get an Oscar movie out there." I I, I in no way understand releasing Terminal on June eighteenth of two thousand four. Yeah, that's probably a crime against humanity because it probably would have done double the business if it was a Christmas release. Easy for sure. Like uh, Tom Hanks, Catherine Zeta Jones. Um, this this movie this movie was very weird and interesting. Uh, it's about a guy who has no whose country dissolves while he's in the air, and so when he lands, his passport's not even valid, and he kind of gets stuck at an airport. A Denver is it Denver Airport? I can't remember oh, what airport, or maybe it's. I thought, it a, I thought it was a bigger city, like DC or somewhere. It like. might be DC, but I thought it was Denver. I might be wrong. Whatever the case, he um, so he, his country dissolves and he's not allowed to like leave the airport, and um, yeah, and it's based on a true story. Um, but yeah, so terminal. Oh no, he's at JFK. He's stuck in JFK. Oh, okay. Um, 78 million domestically, 219 internationally. Uh, so it's on the low end for Spielberg, but it's it's a very it's a light-hearted drama, I guess yeah. is the best way to say that. And, and I cool. like it. I I remember liking it a lot. Like I thought it was a good movie, but at the same time, I just I w- when I saw that was the next on the list i said oh that was obviously a december release no it's not like yeah i i I agree i think it would have done way better if it had been like an oscar attempt or something like that like this this is not a summer release in any way his next three movies are all crap for me i agree i i well i don't hate the bfg very much but let's let's address that the next year in 2005 he did War of the Worlds, an attempt to redo the the big um, uh, who's the guy I'm thinking of Orson Welles. Orson Welles, thank you. The big Orson Welles to do and do War of the Worlds, and it was fucking miserable. Uh, that was 2005. The, that was what was his winter release that year? That you uh, Munich. Okay. So uh, 2005 was this in War of the Worlds in Munich. So, so Tom Cruise comes back and he hangs out with Steven Spielberg. They make War of the Worlds, which is just as bad as the re-release of Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves. Uh, oh, but man. apparently people in the area liked it and people abroad loved it because at 234 uh, here domestically, 604 internationally. I can tell you, I hated this movie the Great. moment I watched it. And Great. here I was pumped because of the fact that I liked Minority Report so much. Here's Tom Cruise and here's Spielberg and it's going to give me evil aliens for the first time in, in Spielberg's career. He's going yep. evil with his aliens and it sucks. Yeah. I hate this movie. I agree with hate, you. I hate, hate it. Hate. hate it. Watched it once. Watched it in the theater. Hated it. I remember the end, like near the end, like the third act climax of like him and his ex-wife or or baby mama or whatever like they're outside her apartment or something and like i just remember it being absolutely terrible um i wanted everybody to die in in the war of the worlds remake very bad kingdom of the crystal skull i don't really even want to talk about it uh indiana jones in the kingdom of the crystal skull which uh, here you, you the one tiny small factor I want to bring up about this because it, it relates to a good movie. 
So, you know, the opening scene where he ends up getting into a refrigerator and it gets blown up and like he goes flying in the refrigerator. Wait, wait, wait. It gets blown like the city, he, the fake city he's in gets hit by a nuclear nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And then he goes flying through the air yep. inside this lead lined refrigerator. refrigerator. He lands yep. and survives. Yeah. Uh, do you know where that where that comes from? No. That was the original opening to Back to the Future. That was going to be the time machine in Back to the Future. Yeah, the original script draft of Back to the Future uh, involved uh, Doc testing a uh, refrigerator time machine by blowing it up with a nuclear bomb to attempt time travel. They later settled on a DeLorean, which was a far better choice. But for whatever reason, Spielberg, the producer on Back to the Future, he just held that nugget in his head and decided to throw it into the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I don't know why. I don't know how. I mean, I know how, but he fucking wrote it into oblivion. But uh, yeah, so that opening of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull connects to a really good movie called Back to the Future. That if you haven't seen Back to the Future, you should definitely watch. Because it does not involve time traveling refrigerators. Their reasoning was they didn't want kids to actually put themselves in refrigerators thinking they could travel through time. Which was smart. Let's put it in a DeLorean instead. Like I'm all about that. Uh, so yeah. Um, so that really shitty opening to this really shitty movie came from a really good movie's first draft of their script. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull made $317 million. How? And then domestically, everybody else in the rest of the world doubled that at $791 million for this terrible piece of shit. That, like, I love aliens. I love Indiana Jones. Those are two things that should go really well together with me, right? Shia LaBeouf swinging from, from trees like a monkey? No. Shia LaBeouf working with Steven Spielberg because of Transformers? No. Shia LaBeouf somehow being... being first of all, let's give him a fake name. Like, how many times have movies done that? Let's give him a fake name to not explain that he's actually Indiana Jones' son until the third act. Which is dumb. I, I've said a lot of negative stuff, and your face just wants me to keep going with more negative about this movie. What the fuck, man? Seriously. <laughs> what the fuck? Who the hell ever thought that... It... I... Yep. How? How was this made? Who fucking read this script? Was... Time machine. I want to shoot myself with, first of all. Second of all... This movie makes no sense. Does not feel like it's in the same universe at all. Uh, Shia LaBeouf swinging, like you said. Shia LaBeouf, uh, one foot in one in a Nazi vehicle and one or a Russian vehicle and oh, one foot yes. in an American vehicle, and nobody decides to get closer or farther. It makes no freaking sense whatsoever. This whole movie is shit from beginning to end. My wife had never seen a single Indiana Jones movie. Please tell me this wasn't her first. 
when I knew this was coming out, I was so excited for this movie that I went out and I bought the original trilogy and we sat down and we watched all three movies within like a week and a half or two weeks. Thank God. Just to prepare for this film. And I feel like I robbed her of her soul. No, because you gave her those three first. So no, no, no. For the, for this two hours, I feel like I robbed yeah. her of her soul. This was the shittiest. This might be. This is definitely my least favorite Spielberg movie. Uh, of everything we've talked about so far, I hundred percent agree. Because while War of the Worlds was absolute piss, sure. You are not raping my childhood. 100% agree with that statement. Uh, so, yeah, that was May 22nd of 2008 that the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out. He waited eight years. That's, that's, how, that's, that's how much remorse he had over that piece of shit that he gave us. That he waited I, eight years to adapt a children's book. Which I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, was it Randall? From uh-huh. the yep. animated series, <laughs> give me back my ten dollars. <laughs> yes, yep. <laughs> uh, they were doing that to George Lucas because of Phantom Menace in the in the animated series. So, uh, but yeah, so eight years later, he he uh, Spielberg adapted a kids' book, which my wife and stepdaughter like love this book. So the three of us went and watched this movie together. And we all were pretty much in agreement that and I think like I don't hate this movie, but this movie is very blah to me. Like I thought it was very, very dull. I thought it was very boring. It had moments that I liked. I remember being like, oh, that's really cool. But like overall, like I, I felt like the ending drag the third act dragged on forever. Um and I, I didn't really care for the resolution of it, but the BFG came out on July first. His first ever Are we July about the release. Big fucking gun. Big, uh, I always thought it was big fucking giant, but apparently it's a big friendly giant. I thought it was big fucking gun, like from Doom. Yeah, in most in 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 most nerd cultures, that's what it stands for. Oh, okay. So you're right about that, but apparently this was also a children's book a long, long time ago, like before us, that there was a big friendly giant, and and for whatever reason, like Spielberg turned it into a movie, and and like I said, I don't hate the movie, but I I'm not interested in ever watching it again, and I thought that it was very blah, it was it was not fun, it was not exciting in any way, um, it had a couple of moments that I thought were cool, but it was just Spielberg like just fucking around with more like CGI stuff. And it is what it is. Uh, $55 million in America, which is easily his lowest. Like I said, it's his first ever July release ever. And it is his lowest release domestically. Uh, internationally, it made another 150 million for a grand total of 195 million. Um, I, I, I think it's a French book. I, I can't. I can't say that for sure. But I think like the original printing of of BFG was like a French book or something. So it might have been a more popular thing over in Europe. Maybe that's why it made so much money. Still not. A, still not a fan of it. So let's jump ahead two years to March 29th. Again. Uh, so later in Spielberg's career, he's shipped like 
a lot of his early stuff was June or Memorial Weekend. His first July release was the BFG. And then he has a March release of Ready Player One. If I remember right, that was supposed to be uh, a June or July release that they bumped up. I don't. I, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I don't know. I don't feel like March 29th was the original release date for this movie. You might be right on that. I want to say it was a late June, like a June 28th or like something like that release. And I feel like they bumped it up to March. And unfortunately, they probably bumped it up, realizing that it is nowhere near as good as the book. The book, the the search for the the quest for the keys, and 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 solving. Uh, Anorax uh, quest, like they really dumbed it down and simplified it for the movie, which is why I said I wish Netflix had picked it up because, like every every riddle in the book is a is a two part riddle. Like you solve the first part of the riddle, but even after you solve it, there's something else you have to do once you've solved it to to get the key. Uh, they completely dumbed that down and minimized it for the movie. Um, the car race sequence uh, for the first for the first uh, quest for the first quest is is not in the book at all. the The first quest is is far more intricate and a, a lot better developed in the book. Because, like I said, once you solve the riddle, you still have to go and do something else after you solve the riddle, and they just completely wiped that out. And again, I understand cutting it down for a two hour movie, but the things that they cut out of the book were just very upsetting and depressing to me because like there's so it's, it's such a rich testament to growing up in the in the 80s and stuff like that and and loving arcade machines and loving just like you know uh, war games in the in the movie they do where you have to repeat the shining and that's fine like it, it worked well for visually doing the shining in the movie but in the book he has to relive war games and part of part of the quest is reliving war games verbatim word for word how the movie plays out so there's chapters where he goes through war games and he fucks something up and and he has to start the entire war games movie over again like it was a lot more fun than just the the sequence that we get in the in the ballroom for The Shining. I I don't I don't dislike Ready Player One. I, I own it. I own multiple versions of it. Uh, my my wife and stepdaughter really enjoy the movie also, and they have never read the book. So like the fact that they like and enjoy the movie is is a testament that it's not a bad movie in any way. Jason, I know I, I pressured you a lot to read the book before it came out. You refused to. How do you feel about the movie having no like preconceptions of it? Uh, the movie's fine. Uh, I think probably gave it like a three, three and a half out of five stars for me. Okay. Um, it's entertaining. It, it feels fun at certain points. Uh, the shining part does get really like freaky and like unsettling sure Uh, but like overall it's just a it's a solid entertaining spielberg movie it's definitely you know it's probably middle of the pack for me of his movies but nothing i can't if somebody was like we should watch this i wouldn't be like no fuck that i'm going home 
like I'd probably sit down and watch it with whoever said that. So, okay. well, that is good to know. So, from 1975 to 2018, those are all of Steven Spielberg's summer movie releases. Um, uh, Ready Player One financially did 138 million dollars domestically, and this is just astronomical for me. Like it added 450 million dollars worldwide, so it tripled what it made in America. Do you think overseas. Canada, since they're like 10 years behind us, like? It really contributed to that? Well, no, because on Box Office Mojo, it specifically says that the domestic numbers are the U.S. and Canada combined. Dang it. So worldwide is the disappointment. (laughs) uh, Worldwide is literally everything but us in Canada. So for whatever reason, like Mexico is not considered domestic because, I mean, they're only a part of North America, but um, they are separate from the u.s and canada uh so yeah i got nothing i i don't understand like, it it tripled its its financial intake worldwide which is cool and like it is awesome for spielberg and for richard or robert klein but it was just very blah so let's move now all the way back in time to 1977 and we're going to start talking about steven spielberg's winter slash oscar releases and i'm gonna have a lot less to say about half these movies because they're ones that i either didn't like or they were ones that i've never watched so we'll start with november 16th of 1977 he released close encounters of the third kind which i have seen i love i've seen it multiple times i've seen it in the theater i've seen the director's cut of it i've seen Multiple different versions of the movie. They're all fine. The Dave Lichty cut. I I have not seen the Dave Lichty cut. Yeah, you did. If you watched did the Castleton Arts, you watched the Dave Lichty cut. Oh, so apparently I watched the Dave Lichty cut of Castleton Arts. I don't remember that, but I cut out an entire sequence out like the Columbia 75th anniversary run. This was one uh-huh. of the movies, and he instructed me to cut out an entire scene from the movie. Yeah, is that the scene with the kids in the bathroom? Yes. Yeah, how did I know that's what Dave Lichty would want cut out of the movie? Yeah, he had me cut that entire sequence out. And I was like, Dave, are we really, should we be cutting into this film if we don't have to? And he was like, he was like, this shouldn't even be in this movie. Okay, so, so now now I now I understand why you said that I saw the Dave Lichty cut. I do remember watching it at Castleton Arts. I'd obviously seen it on home video and stuff before that. I don't know, I don't know if back then I knew that Dave had you cut that out. Um, but so now I see why you say that. And I watched, we showed this movie at our theater two or three years ago. Yeah, it was its 35th anniversary. 35th anniversary. Okay. I remember, I remember watching it then. I don't remember what they channel. I don't remember if it was a director's cut or I know that, I know that that controversial kids in the, in the bathroom scene was in the version that we watched and whatnot. But like, um, I like the movie again like I'm an alien person overall I know the third act I feel like the version that we watched had some extra stuff in it the going like boarding the alien ship type stuff and whatnot um it's fine I have no idea which version of the movie I like 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 I said I've seen probably like six fucking cuts of this movie it's like, uh, the Bla- but, it's like Blade Runner yeah for sure it but it but it plays I 
I like Close Encounters. It's a very slow-paced movie, um, but but I feel like it builds up to some good stuff. I, I I like I like the different stories that come intertwining and whatnot. So oh, overall, I like the movie. I don't I don't love it. I don't live or die by it. Uh, like I said, I've seen multiple versions that I don't know which one I watched at what time. But you know, still still a very good story, no matter what version you watch. You say that, and you made your comment earlier that you didn't see much of these. Mm-hmm. Um, I have missed the next four movies. Okay, okay. Uh, so 19, uh, December 14th of 1979 was 1941. It's the Jim uh, Belushi, like, comedy. Yep, it's a movie. comedy. Yep. Uh, the, the script writer took inspiration from some real life uh, World War II events, but turn, tried to make a comedy out of it. Uh, I only ever watched it once because I was a Jim Belushi fan. Um, I don't remember liking it. Uh, it would have been like 98, 99 that I watched it. Um, and again, like I, I wasn't impressed. It doesn't have any resonance with me. You've never seen his December 18th, 1985, The Color Purple? Nope. Okay. Uh Good movie. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is is really good in the movie. It's it, it it's kind of dark and kind of depressing. It, it's rough and tough to watch, especially. It, it, I can't even imagine going back and watching it now. Like with with the way society has changed and the way the way the world is now, that's that's got to be super rough to go back and watch. Um, I remember really liking the movie, but it's also one I've maybe seen twice in my life. Um, I honestly think I had to watch it in school at one point. I don't remember why or or, it, or what its importance was for school, but I feel like I feel like I watched it once, and then for whatever reason in, in high school I had to watch it a second time. But again, I don't remember why. Um, December twenty fifth, Christmas Day of nineteen eighty seven, was Empire of the Sun. You didn't watch that one either? Isn't that like a Chinese uh, or an Asian movie? Sort of. like I think it's like a rich white kid that gets abandoned in Asia or something. Oh, I thought it had something to do with like a, a reincarnated soul or something. I forget. Uh, it, I, I think I've seen this movie. I won't swear by it, but... If I rem- if if it is what I remember, Empire of the Sun. Uh, I know what the box art looks like from seeing it in the video for store sure. times. Oh yeah, this is Christian Bale and John Malkovich. The film tells the story of Jim Graham, a young boy who goes from living in a wealthy British family in Shanghai to becoming a prisoner of war in a Japanese internment camp in World War II. Uh, so yeah, so the rich white kid part I had right, uh, and it was one of Christian Bale's first movies. Um, I, I I don't remember if I liked it or not. That's the thing. Like I I know I've seen this movie, but it was over thirty years ago. It's been overwritten in my brain, so I can't remember if I like it or not. Uh, it did not do well for Steven Spielberg, making twenty two million dollars in the U.S. And it does not appear that it ever got a worldwide release. So this is probably his lowest movie next to 
1941 only made $32 million in the U.S. So we're already seeing a pattern that a lot of his uh, winter releases are nowhere near as profitable as his summer ones. Or well, it's just like Matt Damon said. First you make the safe movie, then you make the art movie. So, All right. So in 1989, you have not seen Always, which was the same year that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out. Yep. Never seen it. I also have not seen Always, so I have no comment on it. Uh, it made $44 million, making it a not profitable movie. Or, I'm sorry, not profitable. A, a not blockbuster movie. Uh, it made $74 million worldwide, so not a lot of money there. December 11th, 1991 is a movie that I absolutely love. I love this movie, and for years you and I argued about it. I love Hook. I love Robin Williams in this movie. I love the idea of Peter Pan actually growing up. I love the concept of going back to Never Neverland. I I love I love Rufio. I love the Lost Boys. I love the finding and rediscovering your youth that Peter Banning goes through in this movie. Uh, I love the the storytelling aspect of Toodles deciding to give up being a lost boy and coming to the real world because of his love for Wendy. Like there are so many things like growing up on Disney's Peter Pan and growing up with like the love of the idea of the concept of, of Walt Disney's Peter Pan. And then this movie coming out about, about being, this is what happens if Peter Pan grows up. I, 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 as a 11 year old kid like that blew my mind like peter pan grew up goes back to never neverland because james hook steals his children and then dustin hoffman is phenomenal as as hook in this movie um who plays Shmee? who was that uh bob hoskins plays Shmee. he does a great job in that movie uh literally like the first the first fight between hook and pan well, Hook and, and Peter Banning is is just hilarious for me. Like, there are so many things that I love about this movie and, and the childhood and the gold sword and you know just the 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 food fight scene more than anything is is just like that moment where Peter Banning finally embraces his Peter Pan side of of, of his ego and can see all of the food. It's just amazing storytelling, in my opinion. I've ranted and raved about the movie, and I know that you, for a long time, were not a fan of it, but you might have turned a little bit in the last year or two. Um, I really disliked this movie for a very long time, um, but because of you and our friend Matt Wolf, I ended up showing it to my kids, and I, I liked it more now as an adult than I did when I was younger and watched it. And I love Peter Pan. Peter Pan's easily in my top three uh, Disney movies of all time. Um, so watching Robin this. Robin Hood, Peter Pan, The Great Mouse Detective. Those are my top three. Yeah, of old, of old school uh, Disney. And then, um, and I mean, Finding Neverland is one of my favorite movies. Um, the Finding Neverland musical is amazing. 
if nobody's ever, if you've never listened to that, but like and finding Neverland, I definitely recommend it. Um, so yeah, this one was one of those movies where I was just like, eh, it kind of sucks. And then watching it more recently, I've, I've, I've lessened my hatred for it. It's fine. I'll That's watch all it. I ask. Um, I have an autographed picture from Rufio from a, uh, from Dante a, Bosco is going to be here in Indianapolis. Do you just for, want mine? I'll give it to you. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm not going to say no to that, but he's going to be here for one of our comic cons this year. Yeah. Like, dude, I, I'm never here. going to hang it up. It's not something like, it's not thing. It's nothing near and dear to my heart. I, I bought a, I bought a geek box that was like, you guarantee a autograph in every single box. And Hook was one of the three properties for the month that I got that that time. And, did you uh, have you done any? I remember you telling me about that when you got it. Have you done any more, or did you just do the one box? I think I did three. Okay. I did one that had an Infinity War box in it. Oh, cool! Uh, and I ended up getting an autographed pop of Rescue. Oh, um, who's it autograph? Is it autographed by uh, Gwyneth Paltrow? No, it's autographed by the their daughter in it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Because apparently she becomes rescue at some point. Okay, that makes sense. I no, but yeah. So okay. so the the little girl who played Tony Stark's daughter in the movie uh autographed a, a pop figure that of, of rescue. Of rescue. So and then what was your third box? What was your would you get anything cool uh, in that one? Oh, you would ask me that. That's fine if you don't know. We can move on. I can't remember what it was. I, I know I got. I know I got two. I want to say I got three, nice. but I don't remember what the third autographed item was. Look, the most important thing is the fact that you don't hate Hook anymore, and that you found your marbles. Because obviously, for a long fucking time, you lost your marbles. Hook made 120 million dollars in the United States, which was a, a big movie at that point. It was, but that's kind of a blonde number when you look at it now. Well, yeah. 301 million worldwide is is an okay number. That's another, you know, 180 million worldwide. And what was a movie ticket in 1991? Like $4, $4 yeah. at night. And there's probably not been very many hook re-releases because I would have gone to any of them I knew about. I'm sure it's played the Arcraft. The Arcraft played it last year and I... Er, Either last year or earlier this year. The Artcraft has played it within the last calendar year, and I did not go to it, and it made me mad. For shame. For shame. Well, I feel like someone else was going on that day. It might have been two weeks ago. I don't know, maybe. Uh, December 15th of 1993 was Schindler's List, a movie I've only ever watched once because I was so fucking depressed by this movie. I never wanted to watch it again. I love Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes. Zero interest in ever watching this movie again. They they did a great job. The story was good. The use of red was good. Like still no interest in ever watching it again. It was never. it was rough. Right there with you. Never interested in watching it again. But this was uh due to the the questionnaire that Troy gave us the Hurowitz. The Hurowitz questionnaire, yep. Um this is the movie that made me think that movies could be art. Um, but yeah, so um, I'm right there with you, though. It's a tough watch. I don't need yeah. to see it again. 
I think we, we watched this in school my freshman year, our freshman year, sophomore year. I think it was our freshman year. It was tough for me to watch then. So, well, it is weird that you say that. There's, I don't think I watched it twice. I know I saw it in theaters. I know I saw it when it came out. But you saying that almost makes me think I might have, I may have watched it a second time and didn't really realize it. Like, because I think we did watch it in school because that would have been the year after our friend. Like, it, it, I'm sorry, it came out a year before our freshman year, so it would have been on VHS for us to have watched while we were freshmen. I almost think I almost think you might be right. I may have watched it twice that I just don't that I don't remember doing. Uh, and that was the same year. That was the same year as Jurassic Park. So, like literally in the spring, he knocked it out of the park and made one of the earliest best CGI films that cinema had ever seen and then followed it up with one of the most heartbreaking depressing black and white movies that cinema has ever seen. We followed uh, it up in December 10th of 1997 with Amistad, which I have never seen. Uh, Dijman Hunesi is, I believe, the star of that movie. The first movie he ever did, I believe, too. I think you're right about that. This was also the same year as The Lost World Jurassic Park. So I definitely put Amistad as the better movie between the two of them. Um, only watched it once, watched it in the theaters. Um, again, it, it's right up there with Schindler's List for me. Like, I only ever watched it once because I really just didn't enjoy the emotional experience of it that just made me never want to watch it again. Like slave trading is not really something that I give a shit about. Um, not something I want to watch a two hour movie about. Um, it was very, it was a very powerful and impactful story. Uh, just, yeah, again, not, not something I ever wanted to watch again. Um, all the acting was great in it. Spielberg's direction was great in it, it but it was, it was again, another rough movie for me to watch. We go five years into the future. Uh, he was apparently busy releasing a couple of summer movies, maybe, where uh, December 25th, Christmas Day of 2002, we got Catch Me If You Can. Literally one of my favorite Spielberg movies of all time. Uh, you have two of the best actors that are currently working in Hollywood right now with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks in this movie. Tells the story of a kid who decides to run away from home because of crazy stuff going on. And he starts forging checks left and right. Um, Shane tends to not like this movie because of the fact that it glorifies somebody breaking the law and doing bad things when it's not that at all. It's a personal story. And uh, I think it's. uh, Let's let's, let's address something real quick. That's not necessarily why I dislike it because I love the movie blow. I think Johnny Depp is phenomenal in the movie Blow. And for 90% of the movie, he's doing shit that no human being should do. He is, he is a drug trafficker, the biggest drug trafficker of cocaine in the 70s in the United States. But in the end, he gets what's coming to him. Like he gets, he gets his, all of his people rat him out. All of his people get him arrested. He goes to prison and he, his daughter fucking hates him. Like, I understand that Johnny Depp, uh, well, the character of, of George Young, 
is glorified through the first, you know, two thirds of this movie. I'm doing all of these drugs and I'm making all this money and this is how I'm doing so much great stuff. But then, like, he still has repercussions for it at the end. Then you give me Catch Me If You Can. Very similar plot. He's doing all these terrible things. He's forging identities. He's traveling all over the world, like, stealing money, like, doing all this terrible shit. And what's his punishment? Oh, he gets to do some TED Talks about it. He goes to jail. Doesn't go to jail. Yeah, he went to jail. And then he went to work for the FBI to help the FBI learn how to stop other people from doing what he did. So didn't really serve very much jail time for what he did. He ended up getting a job with the FBI because okay. they rewarded him for being a bad guy. So and when we when we finished World War II and brought over all the German scientists to start working on things for us, was that shouldn't they have just gone to jail and not ever done anything for us? I feel like we are comparing apples and peaches with that analogy. I, I, so here, but it's about a tortured young person who has nobody. He feels like nobody loves him and nobody cares about him. So why should he care about the system that's put in place in front of him? Now, What's weird to me is that somebody who loves Peter Pan and loves Peter Pan syndrome as much as you do is not okay with somebody with a teenager acting out and a teenager getting caught and thrown in jail, but then using his powers for good. So his redemption comes in the fact that he's helping keep other people from doing things a lot worse than he was, even though he was doing bad crap already. But at least he's trying to atone for his problem, what he did negatively. I love this movie. Their their banter between the two of them is fantastic. Um, I think that it's this longing to belong somewhere that is driving Leonardo DiCaprio's character to run constantly uh, from a broken home whose whose dad was kind of a swindler and his mom like moves on and starts a brand new family with somebody else and kind of forgets about her son um, altogether. And it's, it's literally just a broken and torn down little boy who feels like he has no place in the world. And so he's doing whatever he wants to do. Because he he truly believes that it's not that bad, and then once he gets caught, he or once it gets to the point where he's going to get killed for doing what he's doing, he finally decides to give up instead of dying. So, like, I I don't know. I have no problems with this movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, it does it does normalize what he was doing, but it it also humanizes him to me. So, yeah, it's just man, I just. I like the first I, I I I like cinematically like the first two thirds of the movie. Like I, I agree with you that what's that? Oh, it's just the joke that uh Tom Hanks tells. Gotcha. Knock, knock. Like they're they're you're right, their banter is good and these two actors work very well together. I just I I, I hate the fact that somebody who does so much bad shit just gets rewarded for it. 
and glory about in the end. Like that's like literally what I said about Blow. Like the guy does a lot of bad shit, and then you see how it fucking destroyed his life. Ocean's like, Eleven. Oh, don't, 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 no, 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 no. Oh yeah, because I will go there because this movie feels kind of Ocean's esque to me because of like the smoothness and the the cool that uh, Leo's character exudes throughout the whole film. You also got Amy Adams in this movie when before she was really Amy Adams. Um, there's tons of people in this. Martin Sheen, um, Christopher Walken is in it. Uh, yeah, there's just tons and tons of great actors. Christopher Walken is dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, and I mean, like, a lot of people are on your side. $165 million domestically, $352 million worldwide. Like, a lot of people love this movie. And I, I would consider watching it again. Because, again, I I don't hate the whole movie. I just hate how it, glor- in the third act, it glorifies, like, he gets caught and just decides that, like... I, I when we're done recording, I'm gonna look up how much actual jail time uh, he served because I don't feel like it was that much. I feel like he immediately went to work for the FBI because he was like, "Oh, look, here's the deal that I'm gonna strike with you. I don't want to do any jail time, and I'm gonna teach you how people do what I do to like get out of serving any jail time." And I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like that's the deal that he made before he turned himself in. I don't know for a fact. Okay. Um, so a lot of people like that movie. In 2005, his uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, summer release was War of the Worlds, piece of shit that we talked about earlier. And then in December 23rd, he released Munich, um, which is a is, is a fine movie. It's it's not good or bad. It's blah. Really well made, but yeah. I was, the the subject matter was just kind of. Uh, the execution of it wasn't the best. I agree. Uh, it had some scenes that were interesting to see how he portrayed them and had them play out. But overall, like it, the movie's not that good. There, there's nothing. There's nothing amazing about it for me. Uh, and apparently, the viewers felt the same way. And again, like if anybody that knows me, I'm not a big biopics fan. So anything that's a biopic not really something I care about very much. And this falls in that category. The movie was blah to me. Uh, it made $47 million in America and it made a $131 million worldwide. So not really something that a lot of people cared about. We now get six years later, 2011 is the year that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Steven Spielberg released two movies within four days of each other. December 21st of 2011 saw the release of The Adventures of Tintin, which was based on a Swiss comic. Some It's a European comic. I can't remember what country it originated in, but it was, it was based on a comic strip that came out of Europe. And then also on Christmas Day, four days later, War Horse was released. So Jason, based on a play. Which was based on a play. I feel like at the beginning of the episode, you felt like you very much knew what went on with these two movies so enlighten me because i'm not sure well it i won't know for a fact but i mean okay. adventures of tintin was is one of those um movies kind of that was shot kind of like polar express where they filmed it with real people and then like digitally overlaid okay yeah the, the cgi on top of them to make it into a an animated film 
And him and Peter Jackson worked on this for years and years and years. And so I'm imagining that what most likely happened was, hey, we have it. It's finished. Let's release it. And he also was making Warhorse by the point. Like, and I think he probably just finished them both kind of close. And Warhorse is definitely a Christmas kind of film. Um, okay. Where, and I think Adventures of Tintin was just like the timing of it was probably right on point. Well, so, so let's real quick, let's let's jump back and look at all these real quick. Always was a winter release with Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones probably needed a lot more editing than Always. Always is a pretty basic drama. Uh, Jurassic Park had a lot of CGI compared to Schindler's List, which probably didn't have much post-production like the amount of cgi that had to go into jurassic park well no tintin oh yeah yeah okay yeah like you you, they probably finished filming that movie three two or three years before it actually got released so um so the year amistad came out not a lot of cgi stuff the lost world definitely a lot of cgi probably uh, Minority Report had probably a fair amount of CGI compared to Catch Me If You Can. Not a lot of CGI at all. Nope. Uh, and then Munich, nothing. And War of the Worlds, super CGI heavy. So he probably shot a lot of his summer releases in his in his dual years. A lot of his summer releases were probably done two to three years earlier and just took that long of post-production compared to his winter releases, which seemed to be pretty pretty easy to put out well and most of the time you you got to think nowadays especially that they've gotten so good at like multitasking at different studios where like marvel just finished shooting thor and it's going to come out next may i think yep so like they they only give themselves a year to do all the cg work that's going to be in a thor movie so they like I thought I read one at one point that they usually send out the special effects shots to like five or six different special effects houses. That and makes like, sense. And like industrial light and magic is probably like the one that does most of it or something, but like they still have a bunch of other stuff that gets done by different companies. So yeah, makes sense. Uh, so, and, but we also know that that's only ramped up in the last 10, 15, maybe 10 years where they started doing multiple because most of the time you heard about them going to only one studio or one special effects house to do everything. Yeah. So, uh, so 10, 10, I thought was okay. Didn't love it. Didn't hate it. War horse. I never watched cause I had zero interest in it. Didn't see either one of those and did not see the next one on our list. Yeah, I didn't see Lincoln either. November 9th of 2012 was Lincoln that biopic. If you know me, biopics are not my thing. It, it takes a lot to get me to watch a biopic, let alone like a biopic. Uh, so Lincoln, when it came out, I felt like I'd seen enough of it. Just reading about it in high school. I've seen Gettysburg. Like, I'm good. I had no interest in Lincoln. You didn't either? No. Nope. Made $182 million. So it, it wasn't. It our building forever, too. Yeah. Uh, worldwide, $275 million, So. Obviously, it, it made some money. It was okay. Um, I also did not see Bridge of Spies, which came out October 16th of 2015. Fantastic film. Is it good? Oh, man. Like, yeah, as for, it, it is a biopic because uh, yeah. it's based on a true story. Um, That's why I didn't but, watch it. Oh, man. Like, 
the 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 guy who plays the German in the movie, he won an Oscar for it. And I want to say he's, and I know he's been in other things more recently. Um, he like, I don't, I haven't been into the Oscars for like the last ten years, probably. Sure. And, but it was one of those. <laughs> I saw ones. your Facebook post this week where halfway through the Oscars, you realized it was going on. Oh yeah, totally. Like it was just that that moment of like I got on Facebook while we were watching something else on TV, and it was like the Oscar like. I think it was our boss was talking about how he had hit like nine out of 10 or something at that point. And I was like, what is he? Th- oh my God. The Oscars. <laughs> um, Mark Rylance. Ry- R- R- okay. Ryan. Okay. I know the name. Yeah. Mark Rylance. Yeah. He was in BFG, Bridge of Spies, Dunkirk, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Ready Player One. He played a Norak. Oh, he played Anorak. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, Halliday. Yeah. He plays Halliday. James Halliday. Yep. Yeah. So, um, he, yeah, yeah, I can't say enough good things about this movie. This was nice. a movie where I was like, I'll just watch it because it's Spielberg and it's kind of interesting to me. And then I was just so happy that I did watch it. And it was so much better than I ever thought it was going to be. So mm, it's awesome. Uh, it made 72 million domestically, almost another hundred for 165, uh, international, uh, decent chunk of change it probably i i would assume it made its budget back with those numbers i can't imagine that movie was that expensive two years later on december 22nd of 2017 we got another biopic that i refused to watch but did you watch the post i did not uh i'm kind of sick and tired of mainstream media and acting like they are god's gift to our information that's tom hanks and meryl streep right yeah, you're a you, Tom I, Hanks lover, so I'm surprised. I would have thought I would have jumped right on yeah. to watch this movie, but I really like from a political standpoint, it seemed like this was made specifically because of Trump going after newspapers and calling people uh fake news at that point in time. Oh, okay. Uh, so it felt to me like it was literally like, oh, well, this is what journalism could be or should be or was or something. And I don't feel and while it might have been what it was back then, I don't believe that the mainstream media and journalism is anything. It does. I don't believe in integrity in them at all anymore. Um, nope. I think that they bid to the they they bow to the highest bidder. Whoever's playing their ad revenue, um, there was some stuff that came out of the uh, out of a Fox Houston station just today that talked about how they manipulate the news depending on who they were getting advertising money from. Man, and it's sad a lot to of, fucking hear. And you know, it's disgusting because of the simple fact that you know we should be getting news. In my opinion, I in being the way that I am politically, I think I've I've known that the the media has been biased for a long time. Well, let me rephrase that. I've been aware that they've been biased for at least ten years now, sure. and it definitely seems like it's only getting worse and worse. And yep. I go to alternative sites and stuff to try and look things up. And granted, I look things up that are more probably more right slanted than left slanted. And I'm aware of that, but I also don't trust them fully either. 
So it's not like I'm sitting there with rose-colored glasses going, well, the, this side, the right side, they're telling everything the truth, and that side's lying. It's like, no, both sides are just lying, and I'm trying to figure out which one's actually close to the truth. Sure. But I feel like a lot of them just give you a little nugget of truth, but then put a bunch of crap on top of it to spin it the way that they want it. And The post is not something that I was interested in because that and what was the what, what's the one with Robert Redford with uh, – Back in the day, all the Kingsmen, yeah, 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 Dustin Hoffman and him, yep, about the um, about Nixon. It's like, yeah, they might have had integrity at some point in time, that's a very good possibility, but I don't feel like they do anymore, so I just don't give a flying fuck about any media outlet for the most part. So, understandable. Uh, so the last movie, there's absolutely no way that either of us can talk really about it. What? Well, because it comes it. it comes out December 10th of this year. It was supposed to come out December 18th of 2020. Obviously, COVID pushed that back an entire year. Um, Steven Spielberg's next upcoming film is a remake of the Sharks and the Jets story uh, with West Side Story. I'm glad uh, they did not update the... It doesn't look like they updated it to current times. Agreed, and I'm so kept- happy about that. Yeah, it can, looks like it's kept in the 50s, 60s era, and I'm and thank goodness because yeah. it would not have worked as a musical for a current time frame, in my opinion. But I, um, I like the original musical. I, I I mean, I'm not I'm not a diehard West Side Story person, but I like the movie. 56 ish, I think it came out or whatever, mid to late I, 50s. I, I don't even want to try and guess because I'd okay. be wrong. So, I mean, I, I, I liked that version. I'm interested in watching this version. The preview looks good. Um, it doesn't look like shit, but, I mean, it's West Side Story again. I already know the story. I already know the music. My problem with this musical is I seriously believe that every single song is crap except for, like, really, songs. Uh, three songs. There's three songs that I like. And the when you watch the stage production Six, of it, sixty one. I was I was close, but off sixty one. Uh, when you watch the stage production of it, or when I watch the movie, the best thing in it is America. Um, it's okay. the it literally steals the show. Everything else after it kind of is on a lull, and anything before it is not up to par. Um, but I also like tonight, and I also like. Um, oh my goodness! Oh. Dance. What's the song? Dance. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the anyway. one you're thinking of, is that the Sharks and the Jets and the snapping and all that? No, no, no. No, no you don't like uh, that? It's more... Um, you're going to make me look it up. So, uh, yeah, but yeah. Well, so West Side Story, I think, is just... It's very dated. And I'm not... Something's Coming. Sorry, that's the name I was thinking of. Okay. Something's Coming. America and Tonight are all wonderful songs. And I really like One Hand, One Heart. So maybe I've gotten four. I mean, it's literally just Romeo and Juliet set in New York City. Like it's. Yeah. But now I'm looking at it and I'm like, One Hand, One Heart, and then Somewhere. Those are cool. I really hate G Officer Crumpke. That's a horrible song. I, I, yeah. I don't like it, doesn't work for me. Um, Maria is really good too. So I, I will say that they have some good songs, but by far, I think America is the best song. I think um, 
I'll watch it because it's a musical and I'm a musical fan. Sure. But and because I'm a Steven Spielberg fan, but I'm not holding on to hope for it to change my mind on the whole musical as a whole. So okay, understandable. So and dude, way back in the sorry to interrupt real no, quick. Go for it. So in the, like the nine mid nineties, late nineties, uh, one of the local uh, community theaters did it, and somebody that we know was in it, and they were uh, oh, well, somebody that we know. Tell help. me who it was. No, no, no. Yeah, they've, I don't want to name names. Okay, um, all right, okay. Uh, I, we know her sister. I don't know if you know this person in particular, um, but she played Maria. Like, literally, when we're done recording, you have to tell I don't know who you're talking about. You have to tell me. <laughs> so she played Maria, but they brown-faced her. They literally... What? Like, but this is, the, this is the middle of the 90s, right? So, like, her skin, she's, like, she smeared, like makeup on her skin to make her look darker and look puerto rican um yeah <laughs> so it's one of those things oh. where you, you again when we're done recording you can't not tell me who this is i need to know you can't you can't do that nowadays no you make sure they get a hispanic lady who is well tanned <laughs> yeah so but yeah i just thought that it's one of those things that pops into my head when i think of of west side story and i'm just like Ooh, yeah, can't do that anymore. Interesting. So uh, those are the, 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 well, I mean, that's honestly literally Steven Spielberg's entire film career, aside from the two movies that we didn't talk about. Uh, he only ever released stuff in the summer movie window or the Christmas movie window. And that was it. I mean, he had, like we said, uh, Ready Player One was, was March, so it was a little outside of that. Uh, he had his July 1st release, but like, for the most part, those are the only times they release Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, uh, I just want to address he was involved in a couple of other really big franchises, um, uh, specifically as a producer. Uh, he produced the Back to the Future franchise, which is obviously one of one of a sacred part of my life. Um, he did the Men in Black movies. Uh, he was a producer on Taken. Uh, he did uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a great movie. Uh, he did the entire Transformers franchise, so he bankrolled Michael Bay a lot. Uh, he uh, did J.J. Abrams' Super 8, which I think is an amazing movie. Real Steel with Hugh Jackman is a phenomenal oh, movie that he was a producer on. Uh, he did both of the Zorro movies. First that- one's great, second one sucks. Agreed, 100%. He did Gremlins back in the 80s. He produced did he that. Did Gremlins 2? I would assume so. I don't remember looking specifically at that, but I would assume if he produced the first one, and I, I think both of them are Amblin movies, so yeah, I think he probably did the second one also. Uh, and then he also dipped his, his foot into Poltergeist, the Twilight Zone, kind of doing some wannabe scary-ish type stuff. Uh, so those are those are some great franchises and big movies that, that I love and enjoy that he had a hand in. He did two miniseries. I believe they were both on HBO. Go ahead. You say Band of Brothers and yeah. Flags of Our Fathers. Flags of Our Fathers was the Clint Eastwood movie. So that's not a miniseries. Oh. Oh, okay. I what hold on. It might have been uh Pacific, the Pacific. Okay, maybe that's maybe that's what it was. I, I thought he had a second miniseries that he produced also. Dude, his his producing credits are crazy. 
Yeah, it's, he did it's, produce. He did, he produced flags of our fathers and letters from Iwo Jima. So oh, okay. That he did. Uh, okay. Dude, he did. Oh man, the lovely bones, eagle eye, like his name. His name on a bunch of these is crazy. Sure. Uh, let me let me let me do the last couple of TV shows that I have written oh, down, oh. and then and then you can look through and find anything that I missed. Uh, as a kid, he produced Tiny Toons and Animaniacs. Two cartoons that I watched. What's that? Four children, not as a kid. He wasn't a kid producing those. When I was a kid, he made those movies or those TV shows for me. Tiny Toons, Animaniacs. I watched those a lot as I was a kid. One of my all-time favorite television series uh, is a show called Smash. And I know that Jason doesn't like the second season very much, uh, but I love both seasons of of Smash. I thought it was a great show. He was Um, the only producer of the first season though on that wasn't he didn't he walk away after the first season oh he may have i didn't i didn't pay attention to his episode count when i when i wrote down that he was a producer on it it says he did 32 episodes so that's both oh so that's both seasons okay uh he did the tv show falling skies which went a lot longer than i stuck with it uh as an alien show from steven spielberg i was interested loved the first season I can't remember who the main guy was in the show, but I liked him. It's Noah Wiley. Noah Wiley, yeah, thank you. Uh, second season, I lasted two or three episodes and just kind of felt like it jumped the shark for what they set up in the first season. Uh, Terra Nova, I enjoyed. Uh, he produced that. It was a sci-fi series on Fox, time travel, going back Dinosaur. in time. What's that? Was it dinosaurs? Too? Dinosaurs, yeah. They were, people in the future as the Earth was dying – uh, were time traveling back to the dinosaur era to try to they weren't they weren't trying to save the future which I thought was cool they were literally trying to bring back everybody from the future to like the start of earth to basically just like start over um I also thought was interesting about that show was the fact that apparently I gave up on it before the end but uh-huh. apparently at some point in time you find out they're actually traveling to like different timelines yeah so that, that was that was something that came up later in the show yeah they're like jumping back in time but it's going to alternate earths essentially yeah or maybe they weren't going back in time at all maybe it was just alternate earths that where time hadn't time was behind essentially I it don't was know. it was something weird like that uh it's been like 15 years since i remember like watching it but it was it was definitely something it was very sci-fi for sure. And the Taken series that you mentioned wasn't actually Liam Neeson's Taken. It was a Taken television show that was about alien abduction. Oh, good call. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, should I should have put it under the TV shows then? Uh, he produced Under the Dome, which I never watched. I know it was based on a Stephen King uh, short or something like that, but never ended up watching. I know some people that did watch it. They had a lot of good things to say about it. Just never anything enough to convince me. Also, probably they might have spoiled a lot of it for me to the point where I was just like, I have no interest in ever watching this show. So might know who you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, so it, it sounds like Under the Dome was good, but like I said, it just it, same reason why like I don't know if I'll ever finish The Walking Dead. Like I know too much about what happens, so not really any reason for me to watch it. Uh, to, I, I have other things I could spend my time on. 
Um, so is there anything that you see on his list that I've missed producing wise? Cause I know he's got like 200 and some odd producing credits. Yeah. We don't need to go through all that. Okay. We're, we're good. All right. Well, that, that was a lot of Steven Spielberg, man. That guy has done a lot of like, he's tackled so many different genres. You look at Indiana Jones. It's like an action adventure. Good. He's he's been working for 50 years. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a long time to talk about. Like if we went and tried to talk about Clint Eastwood, it's probably going to be a really long episode too. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be, well, I don't know how long that would be. I feel like I've only seen half of his shit he's ever made. Like I love Clint Eastwood, but out of probably like 150 films he's made, like, I'm pretty sure I've only ever seen one of his spaghetti westerns, like the the man with no name or whatever. Like, I I, I couldn't really talk about a lot of his his uh, career and whatnot. But if you if you hit me with Clint Eastwood in 1999, I feel like or no, Absolute Power was 98, I think. Uh, what was his 99 film that he did with Jeff Daniels? Don't worry about it. We're good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so. Uh, Steven Spielberg has an amazing career. He has literally done action and adventure stuff with Indiana Jones. He's done, you know, the dinosaurs with Jurassic Park. He's done aliens in a couple of different uh, versions. He was on the cusp of a lot of CGI. Uh, him and his buddy George Lucas were kind of both put, like, I feel like Jurassic Park pushed George Lucas to want to try to do a ridiculous amount of CGI in, in episode one. Um, I just, I, I, I feel like Spielberg's career is, is a really diverse. He did a lot of important stories that I don't know if a lot of other filmmakers could have ever done things like Lincoln or things like um, uh, Schindler's list, like telling those kind of stories are probably good to come from somebody like Steven Spielberg, who, obviously cares about the stories that he tells um because on, on on this entire list of movies we talked about tonight i wouldn't say any one of them ever was bad directing no like even the movies i didn't like like war of the worlds it's not his fault it's a piece of shit he oh, just I'm wanted sure it i'm sure it is his fault come on well i i, I blame tom cruise way more than i blamed him but like, I don't feel like he wrote that script. I don't know why he, if he decided to make the movie because he loves Orson Welles or whatever, that's one thing. But like the script, I don't believe that he wrote and I don't know why he cast Tom Cruise in it, but blah. So overall, I, I, I definitely consider Steven Spielberg to be a blockbuster guy. The financials show it. The things that he decided to do shows it. Um, I honestly should have looked up and seen if there were any movies that he ever either walked away from or agreed to and decided not to do. Like, I'm, I don't know of anything that that he didn't decide to do for himself. So I don't know if there's anything out there or whatnot. But next week, we're going to talk about the guy that I just badmouthed a few minutes ago. Which is hilarious because he most of his movies are shit, but... He makes blockbusters, man. He does. And, like, I'm going to be excited to see. I don't know a lot of the release dates of his 80s movies. Like, I don't know when Risky Business came out. I don't know when uh, uh, Cocktail came out. Like, I was so young and not in the film industry that I don't, I don't remember those release dates of those movies. I don't know if they're summer blockbusters or anything. But, like, 
when we get to stuff like Top Gun, I feel like that was a June or July release. Um, Holy crap, know. I thought we were going to talk about... Uh... <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about Michael Bay next week. I forgot we cut him out. <laughs> oh yeah. So when when Snow had to reschedule for our for our marvelous May stuff, our first May person was supposed to be uh, Michael Bay, and we ended up cutting Michael Bay out because of, of, of scheduling and stuff like that. Yeah. Next week we're talking about Tom Cruise because and and the reason when 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 we had to reschedule with snow and push it back a week and i looked at the four people we wanted to do for blockbusters i love michael bay up until transformers and and then it's just literally like how much shit can one guy put out like it, it i i i i i really love the rock i really love armageddon i really love uh con air no, that's not him. No. What's what's his third one? The Rock? The Rock? Armageddon. Armageddon. What's that? Bad. Oh, Bad Boys. Oh, my God. And, and then the, the Meatloaf, I Will Do Anything for Love music video. Like, his his first directorial debut, in my opinion. An amazing 14-minute music video. Uh, such a great song put to uh, an amazing music video. Which, when you watch that music video do, like, the helicopter sequence and whatnot, you see where he got a lot of his stuff for Bad Boys. No dispute. Why do you hate that music video so much, man? I don't hate it. I just don't understand your love for it. Because I it's, think it's a fine music video. Michael Bay. I just think that you blow your load over this music video way too often. I mean, I have to. It's one of Michael Bay's only four good projects he's ever done. Well, five, because I'll give you Transformers. I I think you were living... No, you wouldn't have been living in Boston. I remember seeing the first Transformers at Phil's Theater. I wasn't. Uh, you were in Boston at that point? In 2005? Uh, no, it was 2007. Oh, seven. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So you were in Boston. I went to Phil's Theater to watch Transformers. I remember, like, I don't remember everybody that was there, but I remember geeking out. Dude, that whole first sequence when the helicopter. the helicopter, yep. Dude, I was at a a July, it opened on July 4th or July 3rd. Somewhere around there, yeah. They had early showings the night before, technically, that it was opening. And I I bought tickets for me, my wife, uh, my brother, his wife, their two oldest kids. We all packed it. We all went together. And I was pumped man i was super excited uh the bumblebee the bumblebee and the i can't remember the police car's name now barricade barricade the the first sequence between bumblebee and barricade was great the the movie is solid and painting and cool to watch so a great start to a franchise that burnt out in the next four movies all of them being crap i like bumblebee Oh, well, yeah, I, I was talking about the next four Transformers movies. But yes, Bumblebee is very solid. Did he, Bay produced that, right? Yeah, he just produced yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so when when we had to, you know, do a, a scheduling shift because of rescheduling, we cut Michael Bay out because literally I was just going to praise him for a couple of movies and then, and then be done with him. So, yeah, next week's Tom Cruise, bro. We get yep. to talk about Tom Cruise. And the Mission Impossible franchises and all the money that that's made. And we get to talk about Top Gun. And we get to decide if we think Top Gun Maverick is going to be any good. Like, 
Yeah, next week is all about the dude who, you know, three or four of his movies were directed by Steven Spielberg. So we'll get to retread on a couple of those again. We'll just touch on them real quick. Cool. Yeah, we will go quickly. So again, next week, we'll be back with Tom Cruise. Jason, thank you for your time tonight, man. I appreciate it. Everybody listening, thank you. This has been episode 44.